Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Helen Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Jijang, a culture writer and critic. And this week we're discussing Dune and Space Sweepers, two space operas set in the backdrop of uh, basically the powerful elite exploiting people and planets. Yes. Yes, in very um, different ways. It very different ways, but also like we're all thinking about it because you know it's always better to talk about the doom of environmentalism in a sci-fi, <laughs> than, yes. rather than think about what we're going to do about it right now in real life. Um, right, right. Ah, <laughs> uh, God. Anyway, how's your week been, love? It's been okay. Um, I am just reading about supply chain stuff and wondering oh, when I should start looking for like gifts for christmas and and such oh you do christmas and all of that well not really but i like to maybe the only person i like to get gifts for is my mom yeah Um, so i've been asking her what what do you want and she's like nothing and i'm like yeah obviously i mean Uh, very helpful so i mean yeah that's your fault though why are you asking like obviously she's gonna say that i know i I know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Last year, I got her a rock tumbler because she's very she likes rocks. I mean, our Aww. whole family is into rocks, but nice. uh, this year, I, I don't know, maybe a, a second rock tumbler. Who knows? <laughs> anyway, Pellin, how about you? Oh, and before you get into your week, uh, yeah. I remember last week you told me a very interesting story about a, a certain listener of the pod you ran into in real life. Yeah, dude. Shout out to you, Aisha. Um, so I was at a pop-up dinner last Sunday for my friend Ifra Ahmed. She does like Somali food pop-up. Yeah, I met I met a listener and it was amazing. <laughs> um, she found <laughs> us through us doing Tokyo Girl because nobody else was doing Tokyo Girl. Wow. So shout out to us, you know, ears to the ground. We know oh what we're God. doing. We know what we're doing, man. Um, but it was really sweet to talk to her it was just really funny her being like i recognize your voice where do i know it from oh my god you do so, have a very uh distinct voice i would say it's only distinct in this country that's you know. ba- that's at least half of it but you know yeah. it it works yeah but other than that i watched the french dispatch yesterday oh no way yeah in theaters yeah i went to go went to the night hawk on a nice little like 11 o'clock screening um that guy knows what he's doing man he knows Wes what he's Anderson. doing. There's nobody like him, really. Um, yeah. If I mean, it's very, it's very. He's in his Wes Anderson bag. Do yeah, you know I, mean? I heard this is peak, peak. Pe- it's very peak. If you're not into him, I think it's exhausting. But I'm right. into him, so I was having a great time. Um, okay, I gotta see if I can watch it at some point before. Yeah. I, also, hopefully, it goes to streaming. But if I not, mean, I feel I'll like everybody's to just gonna. Yeah, I feel like everybody's just gonna send it to VOD to make a little bit of extra cash. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh that's pretty much been my week. I've just been a little bit stressed with work, but you know, that's just life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thankfully you have some gorgeous uh Timmy Timmy films. Oh my to, god, it's been I a guess, Timmy like, week. Take a break. Yeah. Tim's great in that one too, you know. He's really oh, good at it. I he's believe re- it. Yeah. I believe it's, it. He's oh. he knows what he's doing. Oh, I'm so proud of him. I I, I have a, a soft spot for Timmy, so Yeah, I do too. Him. It's only gotten softer this week, too, so I'm very proud. <laughs> oh, very proud. Yes. Um, which brings us to, uh, tell me, what is the other thing you watched this week, Felon, that also starts, Tim? Oh, my goodness. Um, I watched Dune. Just up top, if you are comfortable enough going to the cinema, just do that with this film. I watched it again on TV after watching it mm. in the movie theaters. 
and it fucking sucks, dude. <laughs> no, it's still a good film. It's still an excellent film. I'm just talking about the quality of the visuals and the audio. Yeah. You you really can't beat it. Like, I am sorry, but I'm one of those dickheads that's always going to prefer going to the movie theaters. I think I was really annoyed that I had to watch Tenet on my TV screen. So <laughs> I hate to agree with Christopher Nolan, but he was right. But yeah, this is this is streaming and it's it's in movie theater. So you can watch it basically however you like. Just to kind of describe to you, if you've been living under a rock, this film is directed by Denis Villeneuve, who you might know as being the director from films like Sicario, Arrival, Blade Runner 2049. He is Canadian. Uh, he's one of my, like, just straight up, I'll just tell you, he's one of my favorite directors. Dune is based on the cult favorite 1965 sci-fi novel by Frank Herbert. This film covers half of the first book. There are five more sequel novels that are written by uh, Frank Herbert. There's a whole bunch more written by his son after he died, uh, which is a bit awkward for the son. But <laughs> what I say all of this to say it makes it very ripe for IP franchising. So a couple years back when they announced that they were going to start doing this film with Denis, I was very happy because it just means that like we're going to have a new version of a sci-fi franchise. There's been a lot of controversy about adapting this film. I think a lot of people were nervous when the news was announced that he was going to do it. Because it, it, apparently, as far as what every critic has told me, um, it's been notoriously difficult to adapt. It has been done before by David Lynch. I think it's been done very poorly by David Lynch back in 1984. <laughs> it's <laughs> You haven't seen it, right? No. Ugh, buddy. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, think, I think Lynch freaks love it. Um, I'm not too big of a Lynch person. I do like Twin Peaks, but his film's not for me. Um, mm. And I really hated this film. Anyway, so it, yeah. And then like on top of that, it was it was attempted to be adept- adapted by the uh, filmmaker Alejandro Jodorowsky in the 70s. Uh, but the dude like planned it for like two, three years and the budget just kept getting more and more ridiculous and bigger. And then I guess the studio like <laughs> cut the cord on that. Uh, they did end up making it into a TV miniseries for the Sci-Fi Channel in 2000 for the first book and uh, like covering the first book and then in 2003 for the second and third books but yeah just in terms of like the the shadow that it has cast on content dune is the inspiration for star wars that just kind of tells you what Mm -hmm. you need to know it's like it's like the the tap in which a lot of sci-fi novels have like put their cups under to to get some inspiration from so Mm-hmm. very important it has like the book it's the books themselves like dune itself has i think sold over 20 million copies um wow. so it's a big deal it's a big deal um i'll just say straight up top i only read the book after i heard that denis Villeneuve was going to adapt okay. uh the novel so i read it but you have read it yeah i have i read it in quarantine yeah say. i read it in quarantine last year and it was my favorite book that i read in quarantine i read a lot wow. of fucking books in quarantine <laughs> So it's a good fucking book. Like, if you can get into it, you should definitely... I highly recommend reading it. Just like, you know, small literary note on the side. If you never watch the film, it's totally fine. But I recommend the book. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your background with Dune? Like, did you know anything about it? Or have you um, read the book? Knew close to nothing about it. Mm-hmm. I guess I probably heard the name Dune. And, like, I knew it was, like, a sci-fi thing. I knew it was, like, kind of like Star Wars. Never read the books. Uh, although, I, after I watched this film uh, on HBO Max last night, I went through the Wikipedia yeah. and basically read uh, almost everything about the characters and what happens yeah. and all the 
stuff that it, this this All the stuff on the Wikipedia. Yeah. It is it is a complicated, uh, huge, sprawling beast. Yeah. So. Um, that is my background with Dune. For background, um, Alyssa Wilkinson from Vox did a really great explainer article about what mm. it's all about, basically. She kind of gives all the context about the novels, the writer, the way it's been adapted, why this one works. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a great a great review by David Cleon that I really like that I would like to link as well. Jenny, if you'll allow me to have a link. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> But there's also, um, for, for all my JSTOR freaks, there's a lecture that's linked into that article as well that I watched that I thought was really interesting too. So anyway, saying all of that, I'm sure you guys are all asking what the fuck is this about realistically? Get ready. <laughs> this is, this is the reason why it's been notoriously difficult to adapt. It's pretty complicated. It's like a whole fucking world with all of its complications, with all of its like political nuances. I think I think it was Alyssa Wilkinson that in that article she mentioned it feels okay to do this now because we've done Game of Thrones and Game of Thrones is super fucking complicated and people were totally okay following through with that. Mm. Um, and I completely agree. I think this is uh, a very Game of Thrones esque, like multi layered, multi world, yeah, like its own contained empire of knowledge, basically. Mm-hmm. So. Dune, <laughs> starting from the top, it's set in the year 10191. You don't really get this in the film, so I'll just give the context to you. I think it explains a lot of like the technology that you see, or lack thereof even. You, this is basically when humanity has overthrown artificial intelligence and human-controlled robots and like computers. So... We built them, they rose up, they tried to kill us, we killed them back, and now we don't have any computers. Okay, which right. I don't think was uh, in the film that It's much. not clear in the, the film, The no. backstory, yeah. Yeah, um, which, ex- again, like, when you watch the film, it explains the old-worldliness um, in the context of the the very, very space travel-y shit that's happening. So, in this world, we meet uh, 15-year-old Paul Atreides, son of Duke Leto Atreides, played by Timothy Chalamet and... Uh, Oscar Isaac, respectively, in this film. They are from House of uh, House of Atreides, which is one of the great houses of the Galactic Pardisha Empire that dwells on the luscious oceanic planet of Caladan. So that's where they're at. The emperor of this galactic empire has instructed Paul's father, Leto, with ruling and managing the planet of Arrakis, a.k.a. Dune, after one of the other great houses, the house of Harkon- Harkonnen? Harkonnen? Harkonnen. Harkonnen, I guess. Um, yeah. So they, they used to run that planet and they basically pillaged it and became a little bit too rich from all their pillaging for the emperor's liking. And why did they become rich by pillaging Arrakis? Because Arrakis is special. It is the provider of spice melange, which is kind of like a fuel slash drug hybrid powder that dwells in the middle of the sand. Because it's a desert planet. And it essentially, like, it helps, I guess, important gifted people, like, with seeing visions and making decisions on that end. And it also, it fuels uh, space travel. So it's very, very important. The problem is that the Emperor uh, is also threatened by House Atreides as well as House Harkonnen. He doesn't like that House Harkonnen is getting really rich controlling this spice. And uh, he doesn't like that Leto is basically primed to be the next emperor. So he sends Atreides to Arrakis, hopefully inciting a war with the bitter outgoing House Harkonnen uh, lot, and he hopes that by them starting this kind of like bitter war, that he takes out two birds with one stone. That's all happening. 
<laughs> the thing about Arrakis is that is it's because it's a desert planet. It's incredibly difficult to live on. It is lacking in water. It's very very dry and hot. It's basically the opposite of Caladan. It's also home to huge worms, like huge worms, that will swallow you whole after hearing your footsteps on the sand because they are attracted to sound. The people indigenous to the planet, they're called Fremen. And they're kind of like, I guess, meant to be a little bit Middle Eastern, like definitely people of color. Um, They have been there since way before anybody discovered Spice, and they have figured out a way to live comfortably, relatively speaking, obviously, on their planet. Unfortunately, they bear witness to the constant mining and pillaging of their land. It's uh, There's a really great opening scene that gives you this context, narrated by uh, Zendaya, who plays Chani. But back to Paul. Paul Atreides, his mother is Lady Jessica, who is Benny Gesserit. Uh, Benny Gesserit are a kind of ancient witch, witch sisterhood. They are basically the puppet masters of history. They They tweak the strings here and there. They're like... They're just they're just basically trying to also have ultimate power because they want to tweak the strings in order to get like a messianic figure. Uh, they call them the Kwisat Hadrach, who is someone that can basically bridge space and time and then bring peace between the Harkonnen and that Atreides house and then essentially just work for the Bene Gesserit. They have been also, like as this is happening, they've been feeding the expectation of this figure as a prophecy to the Fremen on Arrakis. This becomes very, very relevant later on in the book um, and later on in the film franchise hopefully so the Bene Gesserit they were planning on Paul's mother Jessica to birth a daughter that they can marry off to the Harkonnens that would eventually then give birth to this person but Jessica not knowing that this is what they had planned she just gave birth to Paul because she loves Paul's dad Leto um, and uh, she started training Paul in the Bene Gesserit ways which you know one of the main things is is something called the voice, which is the ability to kind of control people through your voice, essentially. And this, um, this is, I say all of this because there is an ongoing doubt in the book where you don't know if Paul is actually, you know, quote unquote, the one, like that messianic figure, or have the conditions just been set up for him to succeed. So the appeal of Dune as a sci-fi novel franchise, and I think as a film franchise, is that it and the thing that appeals to me is that it deals with this question of false prophets and, you know, the farce of the perfect leader. There can be no perfect leader. And it also deals with that intersection of religion, politics and power, which is very relevant to our world and our history. And so it makes it very easy to understand this world and the and the dilemmas within it. But I think the most appealing part is about empire, you know, and all of its fallacies, including colonizing people in a land. So that's that's what interests me about it. You know, watching the film for you, as someone that doesn't know this, you know, didn't initially know this backstory, did you pick up on these themes? Like, did it, did it feel obvious to you? I feel like, you know, that main theme you mentioned of, like, false prophet or this, like, messiah figure, I feel like that wasn't as... Like, they didn't cast as much doubt on it in this first installment of yeah. the films. Yeah. Like, it, it's definitely kind of painted as more of a a hero's journey, and there are whispers that, that Paul is the Messiah. Yeah. And there are also figures who, like, doubt it, but those are presented as kind of, like, outliers compared to yeah. the masses who, who buy into this. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it, it's very interesting... Uh, idea and i hope mm-hmm. that it gets pulled out more in the second film that yeah. presumably will come but yeah in the first film i think it is 
uh, using a little bit more of a sleight of hand to kind of, yeah. uh, I guess maybe lower people's guards uh, when whenever they pull this uh, t- twist or reveal in the second film. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's like um, the thing that I appreciated in the film uh, that Denis Villeneuve like really, really picked up on from the book as well is that undercurrent of like doom. Mm. Even though, you know, in the film, things don't go right a lot of the time. <laughs> it's just like, and this is one of my favorite things about the book is that, you know, through Paul's visions there's just this this feeling of like things are are going to work out but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's a good thing which is what the book is all about this is our hero but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a happy ending to this besides that picking up though did you find it easy to follow like in terms of the context that you were given like did you understand the challenges and did you understand the world for the most part yeah surprisingly which i think is very much to this film's credit because that is not always the case in like the case of great uh fantasy or sci-fi epics like we talked about recently with foundation yeah that one from the get-go is pretty hard to follow it was just jumping Mm -hmm. all over the place yeah but yeah, Dune is like one of the clearest uh, pictures, I would say, from the get-go of like a film that knows how to world build and like yeah. how to reveal this information, like lay out this information, incorporate it into the exposition, into the action, into the characters yeah. in a way that totally makes sense to someone like me who, again, I didn't know, uh, I, I knew basically next to nothing about this film or this, this franchise, this series yeah. before watching it. Yeah. And like, for example, like with that, you know, with that context about there was an AI war and now there's no computers, it's answered for you. But at the same time, when you're watching it and you didn't know that, it doesn't matter. Like you're so bought in. Yeah, it didn't matter at all. (laughs) You're so bought into the world. And I think that's the strength of Denis Villeneuve in terms of sometimes you just have to show the world. You just have to show it and you have to have a very, very strong vision of what that world is and what it looks like. You know, credit to Herbert. I think he did a fantastic job of really describing the worlds and describing the type of characters and people. But the book is full of exposition. Like, he does, like, over-explain. Whereas with this film and the strength of it, you have a director that his whole bag is, like, the sweeping visual, like, the huge wide shot, the understanding of, like, you know, this is why we love Sicario. I think Sicario is a perfect example of it, showcasing the border, and like the reality of the border, he's he's excellent with tableaus, you know, mm, the landscape yeah. that whatever the Beautiful. world is in. Yeah. And the fact that you're dealing with multiple different types of worlds that are very special to a certain type of great family or a certain type of people. It's just like the perfect marriage between like a director and the type of film that this is or that could, could be. So, yeah, that that's like one strength, I think. One of my favorite things about this is um, the incredible set of sequences that happen almost back to back. There's like, the pacing is perfect. There's like room for a respite where there's a break between a really, really intense sequence and the next. But the fact that you don't feel tired by the end of it is fascinating because so much happens. And just, you know, high drama, high stakes, tension building. There's like several points of no return it's kind of all you need. Like if you love the matrix, the matrix is a very great example of an excellent sci-fi novel where the first half is the context. And the second half is just like, you know, the guys being on the run from the agents. Perfect. Like this is an example of that as well. Like you're extremely entertained. 
What did you think about Timothy? Back to Timothy, <laughs> like like we never <laughs> left. But what did you think about him? He was good. He was great. Yeah. Uh, he really brought this sort of like vulnerability yeah. and youth, but also a little bit of, uh, you know, wise beyond his years, uh, kind of brooding intensity to this role. And yeah. I don't know how it was written in the books. That's but- exactly how it's written. Okay, well, yeah. he smashed it. He smashed he, it. Yeah. And this is not just because uh, we like him as, you know, fans, but he was really good. He was very good. He, you know, I think a lot of people initially were a little bit annoyed that he was cast because he's meant to be like olive skinned in the movie or whatever. But, oh, I see. You know, it doesn't, I didn't really care. I thought it was actually perfect casting. And yeah, dude, he's meant to be 15 in the film. Okay, I. Do not buy that, but you don't think so? I thought he no. looked fifteen, but like I, I see Timothy as like, like super young anyway. Maybe so. like seventeen, eighteen. Because what is his actual age? Like twenty five? Is he twenty five? Something like that. Something like so. that. I don't know. I I always see Timothy as like perpetually like sixteen, seventeen. <laughs> so I think that's why. I mean, it's it's not nearly as bad as like back in the day where they would cast like thirty five year olds to play a fifteen year old. But yeah, you know, he looks frail. He looks like um, yeah. he does look young for his age. So yeah, he's just he just brings like an air of dignity to this role. But I think it required it. It needed it, and he just brought it. Man, shout out to him. I really, you know, I've liked him in all the other stuff that he's been in. Mm-hmm. But I think this is the first time where I was like, oh, he is like probably now one of the greatest actors of his generation. Mm. Um, I see him hopefully in several Oscar worthy winning performances, even if he doesn't get them like, you know, yeah. like Leo. But he's good, mm-hmm. man. Also, shout out to Rebecca Ferguson, who plays Lady Jessica, his mother. I, th- I thought oh, she was yes. incredible. Me too. And I wasn't yeah. really familiar with Rebecca Ferguson as, Me neither. as you know, a performer <laughs> before this, but... Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, she, she, this character is so intriguing, and mm-hmm. you, you get, like for me, like again with without any of the, the context of the background knowledge, probably one of the the harder roles to play in this whole yeah. thing, and she really pulls it off. Yeah, she really brought it. I thought that you know initially when she was cast, I, I was a little bit resentful of the fact that like. Um, I really wanted like Ghost Shifter Farahani to to play her, but you know, casting wise, I think Paul would need to be a little bit darker than Tim in that sense. But it worked out. Like I, I it doesn't matter. Like she was amazing. Um, you know, th- th- this is a stellar cast. Like there is not. There's Josh Brolin who has worked with Denny Villeneuve. You've got Jason Momoa who plays uh, Duncan Idaho. Stellan Skarsgård as as Daddy Harkonnen, um, <laughs> who was. <laughs> He's exactly how I imagined him. But I just want to give a special shout out to the Taiwanese actor, Chang Chen. All my cinema heads, my real ones, my Criterion heads, you will know him from A Brighter Summer Day and also Happy Together, among <laughs> like many other films. Like He's such a big actor. Um, he plays Paul's doctor and confidant, uh, Dr. Yue, mm-hmm. but he was great. And um, we even get... I really... It really surprised me like i really did not expect them to have mandarin in this film but um yeah. he speaks mandarin and we even get timmy speaking a little bit of mandarin what do you so yeah. what do, what do you rate him on pronunciation out of 10 so he only had like one line but that one line was uh <laughs> the pronunciation was really good yeah like, yeah yeah you, if you close your eyes and you didn't see this white it's not speaking, bad right yeah you would believe like 
Okay, yeah, a Chinese person could have said that. He really got the tones right. As someone that does not speak Mandarin, like my husband said it out loud again to me, and I was just like, I could say that. Like, it is an easy sentence to say, I will. They did set him up for success. You know, shout out to you, Timmy, trilingual queen. Uh, queen. <laughs> king. <laughs> um, queen. Queen. Queen, yes, indeed, yeah. Um, but yeah, I love the use of languages in this film, too. Yeah, like, it's we great. see the sign language mm-hmm. as well, and all the different... The, what's that race? The sarc... This, the, the fighting race? Oh, the Sardaukar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah like so the, the sa- yeah. tones. Yeah, the Sardaukar are the uh, Empire's army. Mm-hmm. So they represent the, the Emperor. Yeah, dude, it's it's something that I loved about the books as well. There's a lot of terminology, um, like Middle Eastern, like Arabic terminology, especially for mm. the Fremen. I just wanted to go into a little bit more detail about the world building. So the use of like costume production and sound design are all incredible. What were some of your favorite looks, both like rooms and also like outfits? Oh, well, anything where I, I love the the scenes in the, the desert when they get to that that research abandoned research center that they have Ooh, to hide yeah. out in. Yeah. Like just the the wide shots, like like you said, like the these tableaus and the vistas and, and all of this stuff that go into the, the grandeur and the, the the landscape, the harshness yeah. of the landscape. Yeah. Um, and then outfit wise uh, a lot of good looks, but so really, really memorable is uh, the one the the lady Jessica did with the the veil and like the oh, chains on yeah. her face or something. Oh, so good! So it's the one where they arrive at Arrakis for the first time. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, just incredible. Yeah, that is also my favorite costume look as well. I think I really like the still suits. Uh, oh, those are really interesting. Which was fascinating because obviously it's such an important. This is the thing that Fremen invented and have to wear. It basically like recycles your piss and sweat. <laughs> uh, so you can drink something because you're so hard pressed for moisture on Arrakis. Yeah. In terms of production design, I really liked the rooms on Caladan because you could tell that there was like some oh, inspiration of like yeah. Japanese empire looks, yeah. like very, very old. Uh, dynasty stuff going on there which I thought was interesting like you could tell throughout the book they pulled from different empires around the around history Mm -hmm. um so that was really really cool yeah in terms of like sound design that was honestly one of my favorite things about it because it was a way that it's just like again like you're doing the strength of filmmaking which is seeing and hearing something that you have imagined as you were reading a book the voice is essentially something that the Bene Gesserit do to control you. Like they just, you you have to have like a certain pitch and training in order to do it. It's funny because I always thought in the book, it's not necessarily said out loud. It's something that's like mind control. But in the film, the way that Denis did it with Hans Zimmer, who is like, like one of the greatest sound designers, like film composers of our time, essentially. The way that they did it is they, 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 you hear it out loud. So like, it's just incredible. Like the, the way that they use sound. And it's why I want everybody to kind of watch it in the cinema because you can really understand what that means. That was fantastic. The noise that you get from the shields, like when the shields are attacked, the like the buzzing guitar warped sounds, just incredible. Like I thought it was truly truly genius um so yeah huge with regards to the costume design huge shout out to the iconic Jacqueline West um and also Bob Morgan and then yeah Hans Zimmer on sound design and huge shout out to Patrice Vermetti on production design he's also worked with Zinni on previous films including Arrival yeah that's this is just like an instant classic to me have you heard of any critique by the way of this film well my 
my personal critique is that I wish uh, these films in general, not this one, but I wish they would uh, get the sound mixing a little bit more balanced in some way. Mm, like, yeah. they're, I have, like, watching at home, uh, I had to, like, crank up the volume every time someone spoke yeah. on the screen. And then crank and then it down. Crank it down when yeah. we got the huge, like, orchestral kind of uh just just sounds and noises and, yeah. and the rising swelling of the soundtrack yeah um, that's my personal critique but that's like a very petty uh thing it's not petty it's not happening petty. with yeah no no serious it, films in general it's like an it's like a i feel like it's like a passive aggressive director thing to do though <laughs> like they just want you to watch <laughs> it in the movie theaters so they're just like fuck off like if you're gonna probably yeah if you're gonna watch it at home like i'm gonna make it suck for you <laughs> um no, I agree. Watching that's the problem with watching it at home. It is it does suffer from that. Um mm-hmm. it also suffers from like shit color grading on your TV too. Mm-hmm. Like in the last third like a lot of the scenes happen in dusk and you basically can't see shit on your TV screen whereas I had no trouble watching it in the in the cinema. Yeah, some other critiques that I've seen floating around for those that didn't know that this was the first half of the book, they're a little bit pissed that it ends quite abruptly. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, so uh, sure, but also like do a bit of research before you watch a film, maybe. <laughs> That's my critique on that. Yeah, I thought it was pretty clear from, from the end that there would be follow-ups. Like, there, yeah. there have to be. And I don't know, I, I believe that, what is it, there's like one other film, but it hasn't been necessarily confirmed is that right like they've been sort of no yeah it's it's basically they're trying to figure out how much money it's making and it's not making a it's not bad like i think it's made 220 million worldwide so far which is good for you know covid times um Mm -hmm. but yeah i think a lot of people i think also a lot of people that had watched the lynch movie thought that this was like a complete film in terms of it's it just covers the entire book and it just doesn't another critique that i've seen uh from a lot of middle eastern critics like middle eastern american middle eastern british critics um Mm. is is the thing about fremen uh Mm -hmm. i think they just wanted more middle eastern actors to play fremen which i understand Uh, obviously it's always nice to see my people on screen (laughs) um however i don't think it's that serious straight up Mm -hmm. like i think it's like it's coming back to that whole uh representation politics like is it really gonna help is it gonna help um, and I don't know if it does because Fremen are meant to be Middle Eastern, but they're not Middle Eastern of this world. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's hard to kind of grapple with that sci-fi translation. I think one of the writers said something about <laughs> Javier Bardem doing mm-hmm. a Middle Eastern version of blackface. I think is what they said in the article. And I just want to, I just want to like hold your fucking horses right there. Anyway, so that was like very, very like suspect. And also Javier Bardem, he was speaking in his Spanish accent. Um, <laughs> so anyway, it's just it's just all very weird. You know, like people, I think once you get into the whole representation side of things and that's the only thing that you're arguing for, I think that's a very empty argument to make. But that was the only thing. And I don't think that's the, that it's that big of a problem. There are omissions, by the way very smart emissions uh, from the book to the film. So Harkonnen, Frank Herbert was a homophobe, just so you know. And Harkonnen... Okay, I read about... Yeah, so Harkonnen is... uh, His homophobia comes out because as he's writing, Harkonnen has a taste for young boys. 
in the book. And Denis just omitted that completely, which I thought was very smart because fuck that. <laughs> um, and also there's uh, the word jihad is used in terms of like the religious war that ends up happening um, mm. in the ensuing books. And, um, you know, there's mention of it in the first book. And I, I think Denis completely left out that word and just called yeah, it like a religious he, war. Yeah, holy war. Ho- yeah, holy war. Yeah, there's there's just like smart decisions being made clearly from a very, very thoughtful director that knows what the fuck he's doing. And this is honestly such a such an incredibly fun time. As soon as I finished watching it, I wanted to watch it again. Um, I think it's a classic. I hope that the second, third, fourth film is made. I think it's the beginning of a really, really great turn in sci-fi in that it critiques our current world and the philosophies that we believe in in our current world. Um, You know, a lot of that has to do with the strength of Frank Herbert's writing and the themes that he's doing, but um, it's always fun to watch something like this because that's the whole point of film, baby, just bringing imagination on screen. What was on your watch list this week, Jenny? What did you get into? So sticking with the space sci-fi theme, I watched Space Sweepers, which is on Netflix. It's a film that is regarded as kind of the first Korean space epic blockbuster uh, directed by Jo Sung-hee. And it was released uh, again on Netflix in February earlier this year. So I kind of came across this somewhat randomly because uh, I think I saw a tweet where someone recommended this for fans of Squid Game. Mm. And in hindsight now, I'm not really sure why. I guess because it's Korean and it's on Netflix and it has some mild critique of of capitalism and inequity, something like that. Um, Yeah. A little bit of a stretch, but anyway, that's how I came across it. Have you noticed that Netflix has been offering up more Korean dramas and Korean shows on your algorithm, though? Oh, they definitely have. They have, They they absolutely have. Um, But the the premise of this film is, it's the year 2092. Uh, Earth has become polluted to the point of being almost uninhabitable, although... Basically, the the poorest people still have to live there with masks on all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, the wealthy elite have escaped to a new space settlement that is like a lush green paradise um, created by this mega corporation called UTS that wants to uh, colonize Mars, uh, yep. I guess, which is not not new I even now to us mm-hmm. who are familiar with our our billionaire figures right yeah, now yeah and then meanwhile there are also space sweepers who you know have their own travel around on ships and they collect space junk to sell back to UTS so our protagonists are one such crew consisting of Taeho played by Sonjuki Captain Jung played by Kim Tae-ri who you might recognize in the handmaiden I do yes Tiger Park <laughs> played by Jin Sung-kyu and the Android Bob's voiced by Yu Jin. So this team is massively in debt. Uh, they're very ragtag, but they appear to find the answer to their financial problems in the form of a little girl who they discover, who is apparently wanted because she is allegedly a terrorist robot named Dorothy who contains a weapon of mass destruction. Mm-hmm. So then a lot of stuff happens uh, that eventually puts them into conflict with James Sullivan, who's played by Richard Armitage. You might recognize him as Thorne Oakenshield from The Hobbit. Oh. Yeah. And he not. is a C. <laughs> it, it's hard. He has a different face in here. Yes. <laughs> um, but he is the CEO of UTS, a bad guy all around. 
um, you know, the team and, and the girl and everything, they, they, they have to eventually, as with like most stories like this, try to save earth and save people and, uh, all that kind of stuff. Great, you know, hero action, typical kind of story. So I, uh, Again, like since I came across this somewhat randomly, I didn't really have high or low expectations either way. And it sort of, you know, met me where I was at. I think it's a bit of a mixed bag, this film, which you can attribute to a lot of different things. But ultimately, I think the writing was a bit messy. Mm. Um, and they, they've sort of resorted to a lot of very, very predictable, uh, story beats and tropes and, all of that led to a film that was, you know, not the most interesting for me, I would say. Uh, although there were parts that I definitely liked. Like, yeah, uh, I think there was big potential. There was big potential in the concept and the world building and sort of the Western uh, outlaw nature of it. Yeah. But yeah, overall, you know, somewhat mixed uh, on my end. What about you, Pellin? I'm about the same. The elements were set up to succeed. Yeah. But it didn't quite hit the mark. Yes, and that is that because of the writing. Exactly right. I, I, it's totally. it's it's definitely like a the reason why it kept taking me out is because I felt that the action sequences were far too long. Yeah, and um, I, the pacing is all off. Like it's just all yes. Off. Oh my god. Yeah, absolutely. Like a. It took me till about halfway through the film to actually finally have a grasp on what was going on, which is like for a story that kind of has so many tropes and predictable beats. Uh, they somehow mangled it to be quite convoluted from yeah. at least uh, till like 50% of the film. Yeah. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, I'll say also I was not a fan of how one-dimensional the characters were. Mm -hmm. I thought there was a lot of potential there, but they took way too long to, to flesh out any of their backstories. Yeah. And then even then, only Teho, the the main protagonist, he gets a little bit more room to to emote and grow beyond uh, his trope. But yeah, yeah, yeah. The other characters, they're kind of just sketches of of characters. Um, yeah. And some some reviewers, like uh, Slate, had a review where they said like, you have to accept that the characters are more or less cartoons. Oh yeah, um, in a cartoonish story, and yeah. and that's right, I guess. But I I don't necessarily want to accept that. Like yeah. I I feel like they could have done more with that. Yeah, if you're gonna do a film, do a film. If you're gonna do a, a cartoon masquerading as a film, I'm not interested. Yeah, right. Yeah. Or you have to like go really beyond. You have to like fully embrace the uh, just like absurd off the walls. Exactly. Of and and yeah. they didn't do that either. Yeah, exactly. I also did not like. The villain, I thought that was a waste of Richard Armitage. Yeah. Very sort of one note, uh, just like evil, evil guy. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot more that they could have done there. Yeah. And some of the, the side characters, the acting, especially in the beginning with the, the other space sweepers, mm -hmm. uh, some of the, the very, stiff acting uh, kind of corny reading of lines uh, yeah. was really distracting especially when you're trying to get into this you know it's hard though you know like you, yeah. you can see the limits of the budget in this film and so yeah. much of it has to do with like the smallness of the rooms like part of the reason why I didn't buy into Richard Armitage is like he's a good actor he I think he did okay with what he was given but yeah. the, the context in which he's in he dwells in a pretty small office, actually. Like considering how rich he is, yeah. And I think that with like with the with the supporting actors, like it's tough because you kind of have to find, I guess, like Western immigrants that live in Korea and then pay right, those actors right. their rates, or you have to fly a bunch of people in, um, yeah, and then pay them their rates of their home countries. Like it's expensive. 
It's expensive yeah. to do that. So I'm sure they bought Richard Armitage over and was like, yeah, like we've got the main guy, like that's our main guy. And then like <laughs> that was their budget the done for that. Him. Yeah. And then they had to just get a bunch of like, you know, would-be actors that live in Seoul. Um, yeah. So, that's probably true. Yeah. Um, but what, what were some of the things that you did like or that you saw potential in in this film? I really, honestly, like I liked the themes. I thought it was trying mm. to say something impactful essentially so i i think like like i said like it was set up to succeed i think like the the family aspect the fact that this is about you know a pump fake of a a evil robot that might blow up at any given time and then like the context of how she relates to this evil plan um Mm -hmm. and that that feeling of like fuck earth like earth can basically burn out we don't give a shit we're starting anew um very familiar very familiar and like really depressing too and you kind of can see the 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 potential because that's the the best thing about sci-fi is when it reminds you of real life so yeah this is i think it that was the biggest strength of it for me maybe if it was given like a hundred extra million dollars it would be the film that it wanted to be (laughs) um but i believe the the budget was 20 million uh us yeah see that's uh for a sci-fi film of this that tries to get into themes like this that's not enough yeah it's not enough money yeah yeah and i thought probably like uh the visuals were like not bad like uh, the cgi was, yeah, yeah like, the not vfx bad. is great so yeah. so i thought probably a lot of that money went to that budget yeah uh, exactly but yeah I, I i like the themes as well like uh we are we all know these these bezos or elon musk like figures right now who are just like on a race to more or less colonize mars and abandon yeah. earth uh in favor of creating a no- new world that yeah. you know only they and their their fellow billionaire tech creators can inhabit mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so it, it's very timely you would think it, it's very timely for what we have right now yeah but again yeah pulled down by by the writing by the the, the story beats the action scenes mm-hmm. that were a little bit too many too long yeah it got halfway there but just like could not make it all come together yeah no end. no so if you're looking for something to watch you are on netflix you want to you know have an okay thing playing in the background um this is not a bad watch but you watch it for some of the smaller elements like watch it for the the very cute little girl or oh, watch she's it so for cute. the she's so cute and and yeah i do like the heartwarming like found family trope that they yeah. kind of pull off successfully yeah here. for sure so there are some things that you can enjoy in this um but don't go in with like very high expectations no no it's still a fun time though yeah still still not a bad time yeah This week in culture, we are talking spoilers and spoiler culture in general. Yeah. Um, so last week, sometime last week, a lot of people kind of got up, up, up in arms because uh, some critics and journalists were tweeting things about the Eternals, which, of course, they you know were able to watch earlier. Yeah. So whether this ranged from just plain reactions to you know, feelings about what was going on in the film to straight up, like, uh, reveals. Like, this one variety reporter, Matt Donnelly, he apparently, he tweeted a... (laughs) He tweeted that a certain star is joining the uh, MCU as a certain character. And this is a very famous star. Yeah. I guess we'll link it so you can see it for yourself. But this is considered kind of a huge... uh, Not even really a spoiler for the film, but it was just like... Fans were 
very mad about this. Yeah. And this sort of sparked this whole conversation about, you know, what is and is not a spoiler? And, you know, where is the line being moved these days? Yeah, it's tough because I think the main thing that people were complaining about was that the film franchise itself in its press releases and stuff hadn't announced it. But the problem is, is that they hadn't announced any of the supporting cast, mm-hmm. really. Like, the main thing that they announced was, like, the ma- who who's going to play the main Eternals. And that's because you, yeah. you kind of can't not announce that shit because that's it's part of marketing. It's the whole part of it, yeah. yeah. The problem <laughs> is that I don't think there's any problem, like, for me anyway, and I don't know about you, Jenny, but, like... It doesn't matter how into a franchise I am. I'm not that into franchises, but let's say, for example, like Ma- the Matrix. Like I fucking love the Matrix movie. It's one of my like that's that's the closest I feel I can get to someone who's like a Marvel head that's super excited about the release of those films, right? Mm-hmm. If the, if someone was to be like, "Yo, this really famous person is going to play this supporting cast," I'd be like, "That's so exciting! I cannot wait to watch them." I don't give a shit. That doesn't feel like a spoiler to me. Yeah, like it doesn't. I, I would I would agree with you, especially you know the spoiler in question here. Um, apparently, that was just it, it's in the post credit scene, which that's not even part of the main story. That's no. not even part of you know you would have found that out in a month or so anyway. It it doesn't really well. Impact if, if you much. go on this guy's IMDB, it will tell you who the fuck he plays in which film. Yeah, it's not a secret, right? It's just I think <laughs> so. There's just I think it's too I think it's twofold, right? I think yeah. the main thing is that the post credit sequence has become a whole fucking subculture of of chatter in and of itself. Um, yeah, it's like Marvel is, I think, notorious for kind of using their post credits, uh, whether it's for, you know, WandaVision or for a movie to basically set up the the bridge to the next thing that's coming, which is exactly yeah smart, I guess, in terms of getting fans engaged and riled up. But also like, <sighs> we say that about this about everything, but it, it's not that serious. It's not know? that serious. Oh my god. Like you're gonna watch these films anyway, you fucking losers. Like <laughs> Like no offense to any of my insight, but if this is something that bothers you, like seriously, I it I know that there are small joys in this world that you want to protect and I'm with you, I get you. Um but you're gonna watch these films anyway. Um yeah. that being said, I don't think this is completely on the viewers and on the audience. I think Marvel and I think studio networks in general um, have become a little bit more skittish about spoilers, both on the TV and the film side. Yeah. So it's not ne- it's like a it's like a chicken or egg thing. I-, I personally think that the studios need to get a grip as well. Like I know from a lot of our colleagues and from a lot of critics in the field, there's a lot of complaints that have just increased over time, especially over this last year, of them being sent screeners with an entire list of shit that they can't fucking talk about. And a lot of these points um, that they send out to to critics to not talk about a lot of these lists are like you find them out within the first 10 minutes of like the first episode of the season (laughs) so it makes it very hard for these reviewers and for these critics to really explain what they think about something if they can't even talk about the basic premise of something like like gossip girl was a really interesting one the the reboot they were told to not say that it was the teachers that were the new gossip girl even though you find that out basically halfway through the first episode Mm. and it just makes it and that's the thing it's like the skittishness of like being scared that people are going to find out and think that it's shit 
And this is this is completely fair. Like I also at the same time, I also understand why people are, like networks are skittish about it because people also just decide what if something is good or bad without ever watching it. Mm-hmm. But the, I think the problem doesn't rely. I think I think the problem is you shouldn't. It's tough for critics to kind of deal with that power. Like it's yeah. like a hot potato. Like what what do you do with that? So right. So TLDR. Like if you are a fan, um, you know, just not even. C- counting the the studio networks there embargoes and what the critics have to deal with but if you're a fan don't engage on social media like you can mute you can mute the eternals on on your timeline uh you can choose to be a responsible viewer if this is what you consider responsibility and and to not see any of these things that you know are gonna upset you yeah like if it if it's that serious for you just get off of get off social media right yeah you'll just you'll enjoy it in your own time and that's totally okay yeah um (laughs) anyway uh, congrats to Harry Styles. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Good for you for cutting that Marvel check, babes. You've come a long way from me bumping into you at Clissold Park in Dalston, London, many, many years ago. Love you so much. Um, and and before we sign off, we just wanted to you know say one one line really briefly about the tragedy that happened with uh, the Rust shooting uh, alec baldwin's film in new mexico yeah um so for anyone that doesn't know unfortunately a prop gun had live rounds in it and there was a whole mess of issues with the set i think many union members decided that it was too unsafe for them to work on and walked off and there was apparently live rounds in this prop uh gun and um unfortunately alec baldwin is uh now someone that has killed a cinematographer on his set um he shot both the cinematographer and the director and unfortunately the cinematographer helena hutchins died as a result of it just completely tragic there's really nothing to be said about this it's it's incredibly infuriating infuriating that this even happened uh because it could it was so preventable um mm-hmm. this is one of the things that i think that i at see uh strike was trying to circumvent or prevent from happening but this is a complete tragedy and there is a lesson to be learned here, obviously. But this is, uh, you know, filmmaking is fun, but I think this is one of many terrible accidents that have happened on set. And it's just a matter of realizing that it's all human error um, and it, it's all preventable. And uh, we just want to extend our condolences to uh, the Hutchins family. So um, on that very heartbreaking note, unfortunately, um, that is us for this week. If you are watching anything that you think we should check out, please let us know at criticismisdead at gmail.com. Or you can just at us or DM us at criticismisdead, all one word, on Twitter and Instagram. For extended show notes, including links to everything that we've been talking about and more, please subscribe to criticismisdead.substack.com. As always, a massive pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts with a sweet five stars. Tell a friend about us. People are recognizing us on the streets of New York, baby. We're (laughs) getting there. We're getting there. Um, But we will see you all next week. Take care. Bye. Bye. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelin Keskin Lu and Jenny Gijon. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Luke. 